sermon is Daniel's vision of the glorious man, and it's taken from Daniel 10, verses 1 through 9. I'm preaching through the book of Daniel. About to finish that up in the next few weeks, and then we'll be turning our attentions to the book of Matthew, which will be the completion of my preaching through all of the New Testament. I haven't made it through the Old Testament yet. Been afraid of Ezekiel and Isaiah and some of those other uh, long books, but we're going to make it through the, the New Testament before I uh, move on to other places for retirement. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but right now we're in Daniel chapter 10, and uh, I approached this chapter with a little trepidation. It's Daniel's preparation for the last vision that he will receive. And uh, so after last week's long trip through Daniel chapter 9, I've decided to break it into two parts, which I'm sure you will be thankful for. Of course, if I keep talking here, we're never going to get to it. Uh, So I'd like to pray and and ask God to be our guide, our teacher, as we make our way through the first nine verses of Daniel chapter 10, the vision of the glorious man. Would you pray with me? Father, give us a vision for life following the glorious man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Help us live in light of his personage. Help us, Father, to reflect his glory in our own lives. Help us, Father, not to be concerned about self, but to be concerned about others, as he was so concerned about Daniel and us making the way that we could enter into your presence and into the joy of our salvation. So, Father, speak to us now through this text, we would ask in Christ's name. Amen. When I came to Lacey Chapel in February of 2002, I was a middle-aged man of 49. Well, I'm about to complete my 15th year of service here at Lacey Chapel, which means almost half of my time in ministry has been spent here at this church. As I pause and I look around the sanctuary, I see many empty spaces that were once filled with faces, Many of them have now passed into the Lord's presence. Some have moved on to other places. Even part of my own family has moved to the East Coast. So now in the twilight of my ministry years, uh, I confess to you that I still desire to serve him and to know him more. But I know that my days are growing short. I notice that some of you have gray hair and that your days of serving the Lord are also growing short. Uh, You too are in the twilight years of of your life and your ministry. Many of us are in our 60s, our 70s, and 80s, and some, like my mother-in-law, are in their 90s. We know that we will be with the Lord soon. So what is our greatest desire? Is it still, even though we might be aged, getting older, is it still to serve the Lord Is it still our desire to make him known throughout the world and in through our own lives? I believe that was Daniel's desire. Daniel is now a man of 85 to 90 years of age, still living in secular Babylon. You'll remember, of course, that Daniel was taken captive at the age of around 15, exiled to Babylon, where he served the king of Babylon and the king of Persia for over 70 years. 
Following that, it's suggested that he entered into retirement, and another three or four years have passed since that time. So he probably was sitting back and musing over the fact that he didn't have much left in the tank. Yet he held out hope that he would be able to return to his beloved Jerusalem now that it was on its way to being restored to its former glory. But as you know, Daniel prayed three times a day. He often, I'm sure, prayed for the city of Jerusalem and the peace of it. But he's an old man now, looking for a little peace, a little relaxation, especially after his time in the lion's den and other various experiences. But Daniel is going to have one more battle in his life, a spiritual battle rather than a physical battle. This is Daniel. And much like Caleb, who you will recall was a Jew who entered the promised land after wandering in the wilderness with his disobedient brethren, after failing to obey the commands to enter into it after 40 years. Caleb, who had desired to go in at the beginning of those 40 years, only to be overruled by his disobedient brother brothers, was now entering into the land at the age of 85. And what was Caleb's greatest desire? Well, here's what he said to his other faithful brother, Joshua. Now the Lord has let me live these 45 years, but now I am 85 years old today. And I'm still as strong today as I was on the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now. For war, so then give me the hill country. Give me the hill country where the Ankium live and the great fortified cities are. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out just as the Lord has spoken. I hope that I can be like Daniel and Caleb if the Lord allows me to live to be 85 years of age. Every believer should desire to fight the good fight at any time in their lives. Daniel has done so for the past 70-some years. The Lord used him to speak to great potentates, as well as to the common people. God used him to interpret the visions of others and also gave him prophetic visions of his own. If anyone deserved a retirement on the government's dime, it was Daniel. But Daniel couldn't stop thinking about the land of promise, the nation of Israel, the city of God. The United Nations had just passed a resolution saying the land really belongs to the Arabs and that the Jewish city was never really Jewish. Wait a minute, how'd that get in there? Scratch that. That's another complete different topic, isn't it? Anyway, the Lord gave Daniel one final vision in these last three chapters of his book. This vision will not be like the visions he had in chapters 7 and 8. The visions that he will now look at will be about the future, the far distant future rather than the immediate. However, this vision will also close his book. So let me divide this vision in chapter 10, 11, and 12 in this way. Chapter 10 is the prologue, the preparation for his receiving of the vision. Chapter 11 sets the vision in its context and interprets it for history. Finally, chapter 12 is the epilogue, which puts its significance squarely on the nation of Israel. 
The vision relates not only to Israel's future, but also to the long-term events that will affect the whole world during the end times. Chapter 10, then, as we look at it today, presents God's strengthening of Daniel for the opposition that he will receive and encounter because of his vision. This opposition sets an eerie tone for the vision that he receives. Now, we've seen a lot of strange and weird stuff in the book of Daniel, but it's even about to get odder, especially in chapter 11. You see, the veil is being lifted. We will be seeing into a spiritual realm, the spiritual realm of darkness. Literally, the curtain is pulled back, and we see into an unseen world. This peak into the spiritual realm, will introduce us to the angelic order of angels, elect and evil, fallen and unfallen. We will learn many things about the domain of evil, but the forces, or the, excuse me, but the focus of this vision is always and will always be the glory of God. Will you then, with that as our introduction, turn with me to chapter 10 of the book of Daniel. You can find this on page 895 of our Pew Bible, if you need to use it. Beginning in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 10, page 895 in the Pew Bible, we read, In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who's named Belshazzar, and the message was true and was one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. Here's the setting of Daniel's last vision that he receives from God. This vision, as I said, finishes up the book. What might appear to be an editorial note in verse 1, I say that because it's written in the third person rather than the first person, is really a captioning or the preface for the, the narrative that is to follow. The editor gives us... In the setting, he gives us the date as well in which the vision occurred. It took place during the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia's reign. Now, most historians, and if you look at that handout that I gave you last week and was still available uh, at the welcome desk, this is the last date that appears on the life of Daniel, 536 B.C. This is when the first wave of exiles had gone to Jerusalem and they'd been there for two years. Now, most commentators, as I said, place Daniel at being about 85 years or age or older. He's about the same age as Bud Clark. Now, as you know, Daniel has lived in Babylon for 70 years and had been hoping and praying for the release of the Jewish exiles for that long. So this message, now given to Daniel, explains uh, what will take place in the future. So that we know that this is really the Daniel of Babylon. We read here that his name was Belshazzar. That was the Babylonian name given to him by Nebuchadnezzar. So there can be no mistaking who this is. You see, the liberals like to make a big deal out of some of the small issues in Daniel and say that the book was actually written following all of these events in the 2nd century B.C. But this tells us that this is Daniel of the 6th century B.C. Now, Daniel surely wanted to go home. He surely pined for Jerusalem. 
He wanted to make it back to the place of his birth and worship the Lord at the temple once more. It had been two years since Daniel had had his hand in seeing that the first wave of exiles was released by the king of Persia, Cyrus, to go home to their homeland and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. It was two years after Daniel had received the prophecy that we looked at of the 70 weeks last week. But after serving for 70 years in government, Daniel was still privy to those things that were taking place within the kingdom. He was reading the reports about what was taking place throughout the Persian kingdom. And he had received information. He had read reports that the Jewish people that had returned from their Babylonian wanderings to the city of Jerusalem had stopped working on the temple. Some have asked, why didn't Daniel go with them? Why didn't Daniel return with the first wave of exiles to make sure that the work continued? Well, it's quite likely that he didn't go because of his age. Being 85 or 90 years of age, it would have, it would have been very difficult for him to make that several thousand mile trip. Or it could be that the needs of the empire required that he stay in Babylon. Maybe the king desired him to remain there so that he could receive his counsel. Whatever, Daniel did not go. So the captivity of the Jews uh, ended and they returned to Jerusalem and he's receiving these reports about their progress in the rebuilding of the temple. He was given a message now by God, this vision that we look at, to comfort him because of what he had heard. He had heard that the temple progress had stopped. We know this because we read that he received a message from God. Now, in many translations, if you have the King James or the RSV or the uh, NIV, it's usually a different word that is used there. You can find that word message in Hebrew translated as a thing, an oracle, a burden, a revelation, or a word. This speaks, however, of a heavy obligation that is placed on Daniel. The message is no light thing that he is given. This, this feels like a burden that he must bear with, that he must carry. So he's restless, and this restlessness cannot be resolved. Daniel has been given a great burden to bear. It's, it's, it, this burden is that there is a coming conflict, as we read in the text. Now, that word that's used for conflict is a very strong word. Some have translated it as war. A great war is to come. A coming great war conflict. That will involve the Jewish people. The word sabagato is translated in a number of ways. It its meaning is determined by context. So whether it means a great conflict or a war is determined by what's being spoken of within the context that it appears in. But the implication is clear here. There's a coming time in which there will be a prolonged period in which the Jewish people will go through some kind of great conflagration, some kind of conflict or war. Daniel says clearly that he understands the message that he has received from God. He understands that it will be very unpopular with the people of God. But notice here in this verse, he says that this message is true. It's to be believed. We know from progressive revelation, 
all the way up into the book of Revelation, that this great conflict takes place in the future. It takes place, yes, in the present, in the continuing future, but also in the long-term future, as we have come to know this great war conflict being finalized in what we call the tribulation, or the time of Jacob's trouble. So, While conflict is always occurring within the lives of the Jewish people, it will come to a great and final focus in the tribulation. So there is this war that will be taking place, not only in the physical domain of men, but also in the spiritual world of evils, of angels, elect and evil. This burden troubles Daniel deeply. This War between the forces of darkness and the heavenly host. This war between good and evil. This war between God and Satan. This conflict, this burden weighs down on him deeply, as we shall see in the next few verses. As God's servant Daniel knows, he must be ready for the message that he is about to receive. So he makes the necessary preparations to receive it. Look with me at verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, he's now switched to the first person, have been mourning for three weeks. Have you ever mourned for three weeks? Our mourning looks a little bit different than the way the Jews mourned. This is very personal to Daniel. He says, I've mourned for three weeks. Mourning is another way of saying grieving. Why was it that he was mourning and grieving? Was it over the reports that he had received about what was taking place in Jerusalem? Most likely, it was. Those reports were terribly distressing to him. He had worked and prayed and hoped for the return of the Jewish people to their land. And now that they were there, he's heard that the city has stopped all progress in rebuilding the temple. How do we know that? We know that from other texts. We know that from Ezra. We know that from Nehemiah. In Ezra's letter, in the opening uh, chapter of it, we learn that Cyrus ordered the Jews to return. He issued his decree. And that they were to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. He gave them the temple vessels. This is all stated clearly in Ezra. And as the people left, they took up a free will offering to help pay for the rebuilding of the temple. And now two years have passed, and we found out that only a paltry few of the Jews had returned, and the the work had stopped. They had laid the foundation, and then it had completely come to a stop. So the first question that needed to be asked was, why didn't many more of the Jews return? Why didn't they all just get up in mass and return to the land once they were allowed to go? Now, history tells us that there will be two more waves of their returns, a second and third returns, which I'm not going to speak to today, but maybe later on. So, why didn't they return? Why did they wait? Did this grieve Daniel? I would imagine it did. We don't know why they didn't return, but we can speculate on it. Maybe they didn't return to the land when it was first offered by the king of Persia, Cyrus, because they had become too comfortable in the land of Babylon. They had become comfortable with all of the false gods around them and the worship of them. They had become comfortable because they had been very successful. They had made a lot of money. They had become prosperous. They were sheep keepers, 
in Israel before the exile, but now that they've been in Babylon for 70 years, they've become prosperous and they become shopkeepers. As entrepreneurs, they had become very well off. So their success and their comfort was based upon their privilege in their new homeland. This might help us better understand why so many Jews didn't leave Nazi Germany when the persecutions broke out in the mid-30s. They were just comfortable where they were. Daniel has been grieving and mourning and worried, as we see in verse 3. It even affected his personal life, his diet and his cleanliness. It says in verse 3, I did not eat tasty food. I did not eat any meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the three weeks were completed. Literally, he's not eating or bathing. Whoa, Daniel, go take a bath. So he's abstained from the good foods and he's abstained from the king's table as well as the the bubble baths and bathing oils that were available to him. He's a mess. Now back in these days, most prophets would clear their minds and prepare themselves to receive a word of God by changing their diets and their habits. You recall John the Baptist was out in the wilderness, remember, in a... Uh, what was it, a goat's haired uh, and uh, eating just honey out of beehives. So they often evidenced their feeling, their state of mind by the way that they dressed and the things that they ate. The temple work had come to a standstill and Daniel is grieving. We know that because Ezra chapter 4 and verse 24 tells us, Then the work of the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. Daniel wept and he prayed and he sought the Lord's mind. He was troubled that after 70 years of pining and planning and trying to work with the secular kings of the day to allow his people to return, once they're there, they, they don't want to finish the job. So the Lord reveals to him that these years of desolation that had been spoken of by the other major prophets that we've quoted in the past few weeks was not yet complete. So Daniel, being concerned about the negative reports he was receiving, they worried him, they grieved him, and so he stopped eating. He stopped bathing. Why had the people quit? Well, if you'd been in Jerusalem, you might have quit too. These people left where they had plenty, and they went back to a city that was in complete ruin. The Babylonian troops, as you recall, had destroyed the city. They hadn't left a stone on top of one another. So these remnant Jews who had returned to nothing were greatly suffering. They were not only living in ruins, but they were surrounded by enemies. Daniel, thinking that this was all over and that the nation of Israel would bloom and return to its glorious and prosperous way, has not come to fruition. Now, as you know, the the first wave of exiles left in 536, or 534, I should say, and um, they were followed by two other waves of exiles. The temple was started and uh, it was not complete to 5, 
15 BC. So 70 years pass from the time that the first wave of exiles left Babylon to the first wave of returnees came. 70 years pass from the time that the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians until the time the temple was rebuilt and rededicated. So we see that there's a 70-year schedule, both not only on the exiles coming and going, but on the temple being rebuilt and uh, its destruction. So Daniel prays and asks God to answer all of his questions. And that's why he has this glorious vision of God. We see his vision of the glorious God beginning in verse 4. Again, he's burdened by all these reports, and he retreats to a private place. And we read, on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. So where does he retreat to? He goes to a riverside retreat center. He's staring down into the river Tigris. He's there, praying to God, seeking comfort. Maybe he's going to finally take a bath. If you look down to verse 7, you'll notice that he took several other people with him. So he's been disturbed by this. Three weeks. No real drink, no drink, no meat. He's there to think and to reboot on this whole thing. This was taking place, this retreat that he was on, during the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It would have been celebrated at this time if the temple had been standing. This would have occurred during the fifth during the month of Nisan, and would have probably started somewhere around the 15th and then complete, or I'm sorry, the 5th and then completed around the 24th. So this was the traditional time that the Jews in Jerusalem would have celebrated their deliverance from Egypt when God took them out, uh, led by the, uh, by the leader Moses, after having celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Daniel gives us the exact time and place of his retreat. He makes it very clear that uh, he is in this place and he's waiting upon God for an answer. And during this time period, he would have had his mind go back to Jerusalem and to the activities that were taking place there normally. The celebration of God's deliverance of his people and his meeting their needs Now, Daniel obviously was not in Jerusalem. He couldn't be. He was in Babylon. But certainly, while his body is in Babylon, his mind was in Jerusalem. He's contemplating all of this as we read in verse 5, I lifted up my eyes and I looked. And behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of a paz. I suspect he was sitting along the river's edge. Maybe his feet were in the water. He got up, washed off his feet, and turned around. And there, standing before him, all of a sudden, was this man in a white linen garment with a gold belt around his waist. He doesn't tell us who the man is. But in verse 6, we read that his body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, and his arms and feet like gleaming of polished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult. Whoa. Whoa. When I read that for the first time, I had no idea what barrel was. B-E-R-Y-L. So I looked it up on the internet. 
the dictionary told me that this is a transparent precious stone. It was yellowish or gold in color with a mixture of blue and green and yellow silicate. It's also called topaz or crystallite. It's described by Easton, Easton's dictionary as gold or yellow or green stone, which Israel brought from Cush or Ethiopia back to the land. It was the second stone placed in the first row of the high priest's breastplate, signifying the tribe of Simeon. So who is this certain man? You, want, you can see in the bottom picture the artist's rendering of a man with a, a linen robe on with a golden sash with a lion and a lamb surrounding him. But the artist doesn't attempt to capture the color barrel on the face. There's no eyes with bolts of lightning coming out of them. Obviously, we can't hear his voice. So the first rendering there on the bottom doesn't really help us much. The second one at the top, done by another artist, uh, pictures uh, what the scriptures actually state more accurately. We can see the bronze hands and, and feet, and we can see the yellowish skin color on the face. So uh, who is this guy? Is this a man or is this an angel? Perhaps this could be Gabriel. Perhaps Michael, the archangel. That might have made sense to Gabriel, and it might not have. After all, he'd met Gabriel earlier in our text, as you'll recall in the book of Daniel. Or, or this could be anybody. We don't know who it is because it doesn't tell us. Now, most biblical scholars of the conservative realm believe that this is what's called a theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there is a post-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts, when Jesus appears, appears to Saul, who became Paul on the road to Damascus. You'll remember, Saul heard a voice from heaven, and it was Jesus who spoke to him. So here we find, much like Paul on the road to Damascus having an interaction with a man, so Daniel here is having an interaction with a man who doesn't appear to be just a man, but something more. This is, in the mind of many scholars, a glorious appearing of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. If this is a theophany, if this is the Lord Jesus appearing to Daniel, then it must have been in the likeness of the man following the birth uh, at Bethlehem. Uh, So we find that there are many instances in scriptures where we see similarities to this. For example, in the book of Revelation, you'll recall that John is on the island of Patmos. We were there about a year and a half ago. He was in a cave and he had a vision. And in in this vision, he has a similar experience to Daniel. He records it, as I said in chapter 1 and beginning in verse 12. uh, He says, I turned... To the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girdled around his chest with a golden sash. His head and hair were like white, with white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, 
And it had been made to glow like in a furnace, and his voice was the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. Interestingly, we see here that John sees almost the same vision that Daniel did in description. J. Vernon McGee, one of the great Bible scholars of the dispensational movement in the 30s, has this to say about Daniel's vision in his commentary. He says, now this is a vision of Christ, and I believe Daniel saw Christ, not in his pre-incarnation, but he saw him as the post-incarnate Christ, in his office as priestly intercessor and judge, and as the great shepherd of the sheep. After all, both Israel and the church are called his sheep. It's interesting to recall that Moses and Elijah were present at the transfiguration of Jesus as recorded in the gospel record, but Daniel was not present. Why was Daniel not present? Well, I think it might be, says McGee, because he had already witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus, and this is the recording of it. So here we have the description of a glorious man who bears a clear resemblance to the same vision that John had 1,100 years later. John seems to be confirming the vision that Daniel had of a certain man, as he calls him here. I, along with McGee, believe that this is the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, a theophany of the post-incarnate Jesus. This certainly cannot be Gabriel or Michael or anyone else because of the descriptions that are used. Now we might ask, why does Jesus appear to Daniel at this time? I think that's a good question to ask. Why now? Why at this place? Why not earlier? He's 85 years old. Why not when he was 25? Why not when he was 40? Well, as you might know, in the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus appears in theophanies to his special servants at special times to prepare them for special service. The Lord delivers a personal message to them to enable them for some great task. Let me share a few of those examples with you. You'll recall that when Jesus appeared in a theophany, he does so in harmony with and the circumstances of the person to whom he is appearing to. For example, Christ appeared to Abraham as Abraham was making a great pilgrimage, and the Lord appeared to him as a fellow traveler. When he appears to Jacob, the great deceiver, the schemer, the Lord appears to him as a wrestler. When Joshua was preparing to attack the city of Jericho and had some doubts, the Lord appeared to him as the captain of the host. And when he appeared to Isaiah, he revealed himself to be the king on his throne. Now to the two exiles, those in captivity, Daniel in Babylon, and John on Patmos, the Lord appears to them as the glorified king-priest. Not surprisingly, he appears as the Son of God, coming and bearing a message for their circumstances. I love the symmetry of the Bible, don't you? 
Everything always comes together and makes perfect sense. Daniel sees this glorious man who is the Son of God, who will deliver Israel eventually from all of their circumstances. Well, his body is described here as being transparent, a jewel, if you will, which reflects the glory of God. His eyes shoot out flames and lightning, which reflects the glory of God. His skin is illuminated. His eyes flash and his legs shine. This is truly awesome. Something that no artist could ever capture in a painting. Listen now. Whether you buy into the fact that this is Jesus in a theophany, or you think it's just some high-ranking angel or some other person, the point remains the same. The point remains the same. The Lord sent this man to comfort and to encourage Daniel and to answer his questions in a time of distress. The Lord will answer your questions in your time of distress. He will speak to you as clearly as he spoke to Daniel, but he will do it through his word. The Lord answers Daniel's question, just as he will answer yours, about the future. Looking at verse 7, we can see the effect of the vision upon Daniel and others who were with him. He says, now I, Daniel, see he makes this very personal again, first person, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. Again, this is a very personal experience for Daniel. I, Daniel, much like Saul when he was traveling along the road to to Damascus with others, They didn't see anything. His fellow travelers did not see anything. Only Saul, who became Paul, saw them. So Daniel's companions also see nothing. So we see two great responses to the appearances of God to Daniel, and they correlate with those that we saw with the experience of Saul. The first is the companions flee and hide. Just like when Saul's men dropped like dead men and didn't see anything, but were overwhelmed with terror, so were the companions of Daniel. They'd fall over and then run away. We might ask, why? Why? Why was Daniel the only one able to see this? Why didn't the others get included? Well, I think the answer to that might be that Daniel was the only one within this group of men to be spiritually qualified to be in the presence of God, albeit in a prostrate prostrate position. Not prostate, prostrate position. We read in verse 8, So I was left alone and saw the great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color had drained from my face, turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. The second response when you're in the presence of God himself is to fall in weakness on your knees before him. The others took off out of fear and hid, but Daniel falls to the ground and everything is drained from his body. All his energy and his blood from his face. He's just there unable to move or speak. Doesn't that speak to all these people who see Jesus in the books and in the movies? 
You know, hey, Jesus, how you doing? Uh, thanks for being in the neighborhood. Not Daniel. He falls to the ground. He has no strength. So we see two reactions to the appearance of God or angels or however you want to interpret this. And in verse 9, Daniel says, but I heard the sound of words. I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Daniel listens to the words of the Lord, and we shall see that the curtains are pulled back into the realms of outer places that you and I cannot go. He takes us places that we will never go or have been before. We will see them just as John does in the book of Revelation. Daniel can see the wizard standing behind the curtain, and it's not pretty. He sees the spiritual forces of wickedness and darkness as they wage war on the Lord and his people. We will see this in depth in the next few weeks. But now, for now, we see that Daniel is hearing the voice of God and he's listening and taking it all in. This prince of darkness, this evil one, we will learn controls the land of Persia. He controls the land of of Babylon. And in fact, if you understand what this text is saying, it's saying that there are princes over the realms of the earth. Therefore, these powerful evil princes have power over nations. There's not universal agreement on this, but I think it's pretty clear that the evil powers that often influence the politics of our day the personages of our leaders sway them in ways that they should not go. Satan has demonic princes that rule over the nations of the world. I believe that's what this is teaching, as we shall see in the next several weeks. This suggests to us that the United States is under the power of the wicked one because there must be a prince ruling over the U.S. just as there was over Persia. So in the next few weeks, I intend to pull the curtain back and let it reveal to you the powers behind the thrones in many cases. And it's not a pretty picture. The evil one seeks to accomplish his person, his purpose, and his ways through people who run our nations and our world. Doesn't that explain to you why there's political corruption? Why there's political scandals why there's division in our nation, because evil is running amok. And yet God is still on the throne. The glorious God has revealed to Daniel the future of Israel, and there is conflict coming. There's a great war that is coming. We shall see this next week and beyond. Apart from the prophetic significance of this message, of this burden that's conveyed by God to Daniel, in a real sense, Daniel's experience along the river in meeting the Lord sends a message to you and to me as believers. I think that it is true for each of us, for every disciple, that God calls us to serve him and to bear a message for him. 
And if we do, there is a steep price in bearing the message of God. If your desire is to serve God like Daniel, like Caleb, like many others in biblical history and in our own history, there is a price to be paid. And Daniel was willing to bear that burden. He was willing to pay that price. He was willing, despite the fact that all of his being wanted to return home again, to never go home again. I think it's worthwhile for us in ministry as pastors and elders to know that to follow the Lord, to know his word, is to bear a heavy burden that people do not often understand. Well, Daniel had not been privy to what the Lord was going to do in the very far future. But now that would be made known to him. And in the twilight of his life, he would be given this great burden to carry. Why? Why when Daniel was 85 years old, or perhaps 90, why did Daniel have to wait before the Lord showed him all of this? He endured a long and difficult life. In some ways, it was a life of blessing as well, but he had to bear the burden of his Jewish family being in exile and in slavery for, almost seven, for over 70 years. Now, Daniel was the man who God intended to show him the future plans he had for his people. All believers desire to serve the Lord, to know his word, to have it revealed to them. But Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Maybe that's why Daniel received it at such a late age. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I don't know, but it's interesting. I do know that God gives maturity and blessing to those who are aged and still walk in harmony with him. So if that is your great desire, I encourage you not to fall back, not to cave in to the pressures of retirement, to cave into the pressures of do-nothing-ism, but to remain faithful and to serve the Lord with all your strength and all your soul and all your mind and heart, even at this late date. Because this is the time that God wants to give a message to you that will affect the future. Just as he did with Daniel. Maybe he will show you, in a real and significant way, the glories of our God as you age, as you remain faithful to him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the truth of Scripture. We thank you for Daniel's life. Help us, Father, choose to be Daniels. Choose to be Caleb's. Choose to be men who remain and women who remain faithful to you despite the conflict and the serious issues of life that come our way. Help us to maintain and be steadfast, immovable in our service of the King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.